Hi, this is Dan Rust, author of Workplace Poker, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Have you ever heard the expression that if you can't figure out the mark after 15 minutes in a poker game, it's probably you? Similar dynamics, often with much higher stakes than a Saturday night game of cards, play out each day in small businesses. Messages are being sent by what's said and not said. Advice is layered with subtleties that have to be carefully considered for full benefit. My next guest, Dan Rust, has written Workplace Poker, an entertaining guide for understanding and participating more successfully in the culture of your small business. Put your chips on the table and listen in. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Dan Rust. Dan is the founder of Frontline Learning, an international publisher of corporate training resources. He delivers keynote speeches and workshops that focus on employee engagement, productivity, and career management for corporate clients, such as General Electric, Apple, Starbucks, and Disney Interactive. Dan's based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's here to talk about his book, Workplace Poker. Are you playing the game or just getting played? Published by HarperCollins. Welcome, Dan. Hey, great to be with you, Bill. Great to have you. Say, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? You know, you, t- you told me to expect this question, and I've been, I've been chewing on this, um, going through the list, and not because I didn't want to be uh, too cliche, but I'm going to tell you, I, I keep coming back to my father. Uh, my father passed away a few years ago, but when I was growing up, my father was uh, a sergeant major in the U.S. Army. And um, he was someone who inspired me primarily because um, he grew up in a very, very tough environment. He grew up um, in the lignite coal mine areas of rural North Dakota. And whenever we would visit rural North Dakota uh, when I was growing up, and I would see the number one, like the house that he grew up in, the environment that he grew up in, and I would see what he had made with his life. Um, it was something that really struck me because obviously I was growing up in much better surroundings than he had, but I also felt that pressure. Like I had to take where I was and, and do the same thing, build a life that would move beyond where I was. So that, that was what kept coming back to me. Um, when you, when you, initially mentioned that you were going to ask that question. And I was just kind of resisting saying my father, just because it sounds a little bit cliche, but he's the guy for me. He's the guy and it's a genuine answer. And that's what counts. Yeah. Dan, when you think about your father, what is it that, first of all, I bet you he never mentioned it. I bet you he never mentioned it. You had to learn from observing what the characteristics were of the place where he grew up and the time that he grew up in. Without question, without question. And when did you really make the gain the perspective that things were so much better for you and they weren't the same as when he grew up? As a as a young adult, you know, as as a as a child, you uh, you just you know you just experience things. And I think as I think when I was sixteen, seventeen years old, and I began to think seriously about what I was going to do with my life. I think what I what I took away from that in terms of the thought process was I felt a sense of of responsibility to to continue not simply to to flatline but to 
continue that trajectory going forward. And it was never any you know, pressure that he put on me. It was simply more of an example that he set that created some energy within me to want to continue that process. So let's talk about your book. You coined the phrase workplace poker, and it describes it as the game under the game, understanding the, the subtle positioning signals and nonverbal presence cues that increase your chances of success and career achievement. How do you describe workplace poker to someone who's wanting to advance his or her career? What I typically ask them is, how often in your world of work have you ever experienced a situation where someone who didn't necessarily deserve credit got the credit for a project that turned out pretty well, or someone who was accountable wasn't held accountable for a project that didn't go so well? Uh, how often have you experienced someone getting a promotion where you kind of scratch your head and you go, really? Her or him? And perhaps even the why not me? And when I ask people, how often does the world of work sometimes seem a little arbitrary and crazy to you? Virtually everybody says, not sometimes, almost daily, there are things that happen in the world of work that just can drive us a little nuts, can feel a little like this isn't, this can't be the way that it's supposed to be. And when I ask them those questions and they share with me some of their own craziness at work and then share with them the whole goal of workplace poker is to make sense of some of that arbitrary craziness and help you understand that all that's really happening is we're all, we're all just being human beings and human beings are in their own way kind of arbitrary, crazy people. And as much as we want to believe we are all sentient, logical people and that the workplace is always a meritocracy, it's not. It's not. It's The workplace is driven by imperfect human beings. It's, it's populated by imperfect human beings. So it would make sense that there's a lot of imperfection in the culture of most workplaces. So this book is all about how do you not try to fight it, but just understand it and make sense of it and then flow with it in a way that maximizes your own individual career trajectory. And along the way, what I found is if you have lots of people who are employing the strategies within workplace poker, because they aren't, these aren't conniving strategies. These aren't, they, these aren't unethical strategies. They're very positive ethical strategies. And if you have a fair number of people in your work environment employing them, uh, you actually end up with a, a much more positive and productive work environment that's ultimately better for everyone except those individuals who are getting credit for work that they shouldn't have gotten credit for. I would say those individuals end up suffering when you've got an environment that's driven by a lot of people playing the workplace poker game. And a lot of what you write about depends upon being a better observer of people. Is this something that you grew up being very savvy at reading people and understanding the writing on the wall? So I didn't think of myself that way until I would say maybe in my, in, in my 30s. But I was always that person who tended to think first before I speak. I loved, even in school, like in, in, in high school, I actually loved sitting and listening to lectures, listening to uh, teachers or others sharing their their perspective or sharing their information. 
And, and I was very engaged and, and attentive. Part of that was because I think I have my own, I've, I've never been diagnosed, but I think I'll, I have a, um, probably some attention deficit I- issue going on because I find that I have to actually very much concentrate on someone to, to stay engaged for, for lengthy periods of time. So I developed that habit of really engaging, really paying attention, and that stayed with me in my young adulthood and later adulthood. And so I've tended to be a really good observer of people. And then over time, you begin to weave together the various things that you've observed and, and, and start to see that there's so much communication that takes place under the surface. But a lot of that awareness comes with time and maturity. And part of what I hoped for in the, in the book Workplace Poker was to help younger employees accelerate that process it did take me a while before I began to really understand that just because the CEO delivers a speech and he says A, B, and C, that doesn't necessarily mean A, B, and C. Oftentimes, depending upon your perspective and your background, and if you're really listening carefully, you can discern very different messaging in the way that A, B, C message is delivered. But that also makes it much more interesting and engaging. When you're listening, not for what just for what's said, but what's said under what's said, or you're listening for what's not said. Hang on, because that's really interesting. First of all, let's point out, can you have this level of listening and observing while being on your smartphone? Does it work? Oh, you mean being distracted by your smartphone where you're, I would say it doesn't work if you are actually drawn in the dings on your smartphone because your Outlook app is you know, telling you that email has come in. And what I do find happening in a lot of business meetings, and I should point out, I'm a working guy like anybody else. So I, I work in a business. So I experience these meetings. And the moment you start doing that, you're absolutely right. You lose your ability to really discern what's happening, not only on the surface, but under the surface. I've got one colleague who is a, a great guy. He's an incredibly bright, incredibly quick, but that incredible quickness is actually his Achilles heel because he gets easily bored. And once he's easily bored, he, he glances to his tablet, glances to his phone, rifles through papers. And I've been in many meetings where I'm sitting there watching and engaging and I'm and I'm looking at people's eyes I'm looking at their body language I'm seeing lots of stuff happening around me and to your point he got bored 5 minutes ago and he's rifling through a spreadsheet uh, trying to get ready for the next meeting it's just going over his head and he's losing all of the rich information that's available to anyone if they just pay attention in a meeting without a doubt I know this was significant for you because in the book, you talk about being surprised by layoff. And there was someone in your office, Tony, who wasn't surprised by that. Can you share a little bit about that story and that when you got the notice and it seemed like everyone was surprised because they didn't see the writing on the wall except for one guy? So let me tell you, in the when I was actually experiencing that story, so that's one of the stories in the book that actually came from my life. The, the majority of the stories are things that you know, I've observed with other people or, or others have shared with me. But that one I experienced myself. And at the time, I did not look at it as, oh, here's, a, here's an incredible life lesson for me that will be very helpful you know, over the next <laughs> 10 or 20 years. Uh, instead, it was like the world had crumbled down around me because I was absolutely flabbergasted that we had been laid off. A large number of us in, uh, in the San Diego office had been laid off. 
And we were we were gathered together at a bar in Del Mar, California, just north of San Diego. And I can see the group of people that were around me. We were basically just lamenting and bitching, moaning, complaining, and you know, pounding our fists on the table. How you know, how awful, you know, how can they possibly do this? How stupid? Why why is this happening? And then in walks Tony, who was one of our mid-level managers. But he, he had agreed to meet up with us because we'd all just gotten our layoff notices that morning, including mm-hmm. Tony. But he shows up and he's kind of dressed up and is looking a little, you know, scrubbed and polished more so than the rest of us. And he could only stay for a few minutes because he was headed off to a job interview, which he actually told us it wasn't his first interview with this company. It was the third interview. It was he was like close to getting a getting a job offer. And and it turns out, as much as frustrating as it was for us to watch Tony walk away from the bar, you know, heading off to an interview. And he, and he was he was hired that day. And it, and it wasn't just a an emergency hire for him. I mean he'd been working this for some time and ultimately this point of layoff became a a big step up for him in his new job in a new business, a new a new employer. And when I circled back with him weeks later to try to figure out, well, how did you even have a clue that this was going to be happening? He recounted for me a whole series of things. And I, and I walked through all the details in the book, but he recounted for me a series of you know, conversations he'd had, observations he'd had that, that all in hindsight, I could connect all the dots. I, it all made sense to me. Oh, of course. We we should have been expecting it wasn't like this. he had some inside source. No, no. Uh, now there were he did have a few people who at the corporate office who were very open to him and were sharing information with him perhaps a little more freely than they should. But the reason he had that was he mentioned different events and parties that he had attended where I was there as well and I met those same people, but he'd actually connected with them at those parties. He didn't just view them as, oh yeah, you're the accountant from corporate. I'll, you know, I'll shake your hand and I'll move on. Actually had connected with people. And so I did realize at the time, okay, I I could have been a lot smarter at this. And and in the end, you know, modeling Tony's behavior. And I and I took that with me to to realize there is so much going on, so much to pay attention to. For someone like me with a short attention span and a mind that tends to race, it actually works really well because I can't get bored in a business meeting. All I have to do is say, all right, now my attention goes from the boring PowerPoint slides to the people and watching the people. And if and by engaging at that level, it always keeps me connected to what's going on as opposed to letting my mind drift off. So it really became a wake-up call that day, didn't it? Without a doubt, yes. And it helped connect what you'd always been enjoying with listening to school lectures to saying that those same skills of observation and analysis and you know hypothesizing, what might this mean, can play a significant role in helping you advance at work. You're, you're right. And then I began to think about times in my work life where I had been really good at those observations and other times where I'd been shocked or surprised or, or missed out on things. And one of my realizations, and I didn't really come to this realization until I began, one of my realizations was that the times in my life when I had been best at reading the room, so to speak, were those times when I had been emotionally somewhat disengaged even accepting of things that I might not necessarily approve of or I might not be thrilled with. But what I realized is when you get emotionally tied up either in anger or frustration 
or even in, in a friendship or even being you know, attracted to someone, the more emotionally engaged you are, the less you are able to truly read them from an objective standpoint. So one of the points that I make and one of the key lessons in reading people in the book is to set your emotional connection aside, whether it's a negative connection or a positive connection, and put yourself in that place where you're almost like um, the anthropologist um, uh, Jane Goodall. When she's observing chimpanzees in the wild, she observed some fairly horrendous behavior. I mean, chimpanzees will kill and murder other chimpanzees. And she very objectively observed those behaviors. She noted those behaviors. She didn't judge those behaviors. And now hopefully, you know, in the world of the human workplace, we're not, you know, we're not killing each other. We're not beating each other with rocks. Happening, if you notice something happening like this in the workplace, we have an HR department to call. We're chimpanzee department, you know, tribes don't. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And also when you see something happen, it's so easy to, to adopt the, the mindset of, oh God, isn't that awful? How, how could he be that way? How could he have said that? How could this have happened? How could they do whatever? And that anger and frustration tends to blind you to the deeper reality of what's going on. When a CEO has to announce layoffs or has to announce that our bonuses this year are only going to be you know, 20% of what we were all expecting or other, other things are done, your frustration at those circumstances can blind you to just stepping back and observing, okay, what's really going on? And so being that dispassionate observer in the workplace what I learned about myself was that it was those times where I could be dispassionate, where I clearly saw the lay of the land. And it was those times where I allowed my emotions, they impacted what I was really seeing. And it's not just negative emotions. I, I would say the, the worst hiring mistake I've ever made in my life was in a situation where I became good friends with one of the people that was being inter interviewed. And I liked him. He was a great guy. I liked him. And we had great conversations, great jokes, great times. And it blinded me. I advocated that he get a promotion. He got the promotion. A few other people who were my peers had expressed concerns. They didn't really think there was a good fit, but I didn't see it. And sure enough, within six months, it just blew up. He was absolutely not a good fit. It hurt my credibility with, with colleagues. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how did I get myself into that situation? And I was, I just was blinded. I was blinded by the positive emotional connections that I had with, with him. So how does the work, workplace poker approach differ from office politics with just a, a Machiavellian ruthlessness? Well, I think there are two big areas where, where it differs. From a, a, a business owner or a business leader's perspective, if you think about office politics as being that Machiavellian win-lose type of, of culture that's taking place, you can be forgiven for thinking, I need to minimize the degree to which there are you know, politics going on in our workplace. I need to create this perception that this is a meritocracy. We reward performance and we hold people accountable, which of course we all do, or we all at least believe that we, we do. But if you think that the game under the game is something that in an ideal scenario never happens, 
it's as if you're saying, let's have humans who aren't human. And I just don't believe that that works. So I think, number one, the distinction between Machiavellian politics and positive workplace poker politics is on the workplace poker side, we acknowledge we're all humans. We acknowledge we're imperfect. And then when it comes to the day-to-day actions and strategies within the book, the actions are all incredibly ethical, not always easy, but incredibly ethical, incredibly positive. For example, there's a section in the book on having open conversations about difficult subjects. How do you step into the natural tension of a difficult situation and have a positive, productive dialogue about that difficult situation? There's a way to make that happen in a way that's it's great for the business, it's great for the individual. What happens in most negative political environments is those tough conversations never happen. People don't feel comfortable or they don't know how to step into a tough situation, so they just ghost or they go silent. And that can't be good for them and that can't be good for the business. And I imagine also that in environments where they don't adopt this approach, it could be an easy win-lose or lose-lose situation where they don't really understand how to navigate it towards something where it's a win-win outcome. Absolutely. One of the challenges for business leaders is as they're assessing the culture of their organization, you can't do that as a business leader without also assessing the bubble within which you live as a leader. There is no question that the moment you have some degree of authority or power over others, a bubble starts to be created because people aren't going to be totally straight with you. They're not going to be totally transparent with you because you have some degree of power over them. And as you move up in in terms of hierarchy, that bubble gets bigger and thicker. One rule of thumb I, I use with leaders is I say, if you're speaking to an audience and you tell a couple of jokes, if that audience is two or three or four levels beneath you in terms of the organizational hierarchy, for every level of the organizational hierarchy, the level of that someone is below you, their degree of authenticity reduces by 50%. So when you tell a joke uh, and everyone's laughing and you're thinking that you're just killing, you're just, you're just knocking it out of the ballpark because they're telling you your stories are fantastic, your insights are amazing, and you're incredibly you know, humorous and, and charming. If those people are three layers below you in the corporate hierarchy, actually, I would view that as maybe being 20% authentic because you're probably not as funny as you think you are You're not as insightful as you think you are, at least from their perspective. Having an assessment of your organizational culture as a business leader is even more difficult than as simply an employee who's swimming in those waters because to some degree, you are isolated by the bubble around you. It's a a tough concept for some leaders to get their head around. It's absolutely imperative, though, that for business leaders who are listening to realize that this is the case and then interpret people's responses through a filter that kind of normalizes them once again. (laughs) Absolutely. The worst thing that can happen for a business leader is for someone to be working him and he he or she not realize that they're being worked. And unfortunately, it happens a lot more than most leaders would like to be the case. But of course, when people you know approach a business leader out of their own nervousness and insecurity, they're going to tend to lead with telling you how great your ideas are, not with um, you know what you're proposing isn't executable. And in the book, you write about Vivek, who was in a culture that was very difficult, very competitive. He was a stockbroker, and he loved his business, 
but he didn't like the social aspect of it that happened after work with the partying and the drinking and the, the whole frat boy mentality that carried over throughout that company and that whole industry. What did he focus on that allowed him to analyze his situation and win, as you put it, the only game that really mattered? Well, what I love about this story is in my early career, I was a stockbroker at a brokerage firm in San Diego, and I saw this environment, this Darwinian environment where survival of new brokers is based upon really nothing more than how many new accounts have you opened every week and how many commission dollars have you generated. And it's a it's almost like a Lord of the Flies environment with you know both young men and young women. And you see a lot of young people uh, come in and survive for maybe four, five, six months, and then it's just too much for them. They can't take the pressure. They can't take the, the environment, and they, they end up moving on. And what I, what I saw with Vivek, and he and I became friends, and so I kind of understood his, his mindset even early on. What was very unique about him was that he understood going in exactly what that environment was. What's not in the book, because I only learned this later after writing it, well, it turns out he had an uncle who was a broker. And his uncle kind of walked him through you know, some, of the, uh, some of the insights in terms of what to expect and what's really going on. Because what he, was, what he saw coming in was that new brokers would oftentimes you know, come in, focus on opening new accounts, get a lot of, of support from the existing brokers in their first six months. But at about the six-month mark in, in this particular firm, a lot of that camaraderie and support from the more senior brokers, it almost flatlined, tended to go away. And what Vivek realized was that there was a reason behind it. But the reason behind it is that many of the senior brokers, once a new broker had come on board, gotten a, a book of, you know, let's say 20 new clients, when he or she goes away, those new clients get distributed amongst the senior brokers. So there was almost a machine of, yeah, we'll bring in a new wave of, of new brokers. They'll spend six months gathering new accounts. We'll identify who the real rock stars are. And then we'll get all of the accounts from the 10 that didn't survive. So because he recognized that cadence, but he recognized it so that when he got to that six-month mark and things got a little tough, some of the senior brokers were a little more abrasive than usual and things got dialed up a little bit more than perhaps they had things were brand new and fresh. He didn't take it personally. He understood the game that was being played and he continued to just focus on new accounts, commission dollars, keep playing the game, keep playing the game, keep playing the game. He just moved his way through it and, and ultimately survived and did very, very well for himself because he worked through those tough months. His manager eventually started referring to him as a keeper and passing that, that critical stage to become a keeper. The only thing that ultimately was different about Vivek was that once he became you know, a keeper, more of a senior broker, as he and I were talking, he didn't really feel comfortable with that whole Darwinian aspect where you feed off of the bones of those who, who haven't, you know, who weren't able to last. So he actually became a really strong, solid mentor of other younger brokers coming in. But I asked him, well, did you set an example and, and did that help to change the culture of that brokerage firm? And he, he smiled and he just said, absolutely not. The culture is still what the culture is. So he said, I'm going to do my thing. The key is to recognize that culture and that helps you flow through it, as opposed to just wondering, 
why is this just so hard and why are they so abrasive sometimes? There was another aspect of that which really struck me. And it was that he understood that what the senior managers and partners really cared about was bringing in accounts. And because he was so focused and diligent with that aspect of his job, he was allowed to not participate in some of these other social aspects. And I thought that was really interesting for people to avoid some of that other pressure, to realize that there's something that matters. And if you could figure out what that core is in your business, in your industry, you'll be forgiven for not succeeding in some of the other minor areas. Oh, you're you're exactly right. And you, you know, you could almost call call it hazing. You know, they, you know, some of the activities that were expected and you know, he he didn't like going out at gentlemen's clubs or strip bars, but some of those activities he just didn't want to participate in, but because he understood what was most important to his manager and other senior brokers, even when it wasn't necessarily true, what he would say, you know, when they would say, are you coming with us to, to event or to this, this place? He would simply say, no, I'm either going to stay here or I'm going to some other event that might help me drive some new account growth. So he, he would go to lo- you know, local community meetings or local other things that had some attachment to new account development or community engagement. And s- most of the time it was true, but he also told me that sometimes it wasn't true. It was just a way to get them off his back. It, it, it cemented in the minds of those senior brokers and, and his manager, this is a guy who is serious about the most important things. And whether or not he hangs out with us and you know gets uh, sloshed on a Saturday night, eh, okay, so he may not be, quote, one of us, but he's doing the thing that we really want him doing. Yep, growing the business. Yeah. So here's an issue that's important for people who are high potentials and managers within small businesses to recognize. Share with us how important likability is. And why does it matter so much for people in business? I think that sometimes, perhaps more so with men than women, but, uh, but not, not as much more so than we think, men can get fairly far in their career through being pushy, abrasive, even obnoxious, because many people will simply, the, the, the waters will part. If someone is really pushy, 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 or, or driving, 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 that'll get you so far. And unfortunately, what that sometimes does is for that sort of rhinoceros person who's pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward, it can become the one tool that they think is going to always work and will always produce results for them. But there does come a point in virtually any career where simply being the, appra- the abrasive hammer no longer produces the same results that it used to produce. And, and I believe that the workplace has shifted in terms of cultural expectations in the last 20 or 30 years. So that even today, I think there was a time where you could be that abrasive hammer and it might get you through the first 10 years of your career. I don't think that's the case anymore. I do think that likability, charm, connecting with other people, you can still, you can still be a driver. You can still be someone who, who drives performance in a somewhat hard-nosed sort of way. But if you can do it with a degree of charm and likability, you're going to get so much further. And I've seen a, a fair number of CEOs who have, without even realizing it, they've put a ceiling on their own career trajectory because people just don't like working with them. There are people who recognize that this is important, but they feel like it's not part of their toolkit. Can somebody still be authentic or true to themselves and develop these skills 
in order to advance their careers and be useful in their roles and in their companies. So it's not easy. It, of course, starts with self-recognition. And I will, I will uh, as we're, we're talking on the phone, but I'm raising my hand here to say, I will raise my hand as a poster boy for exactly this. Because in the first 10 to 15 years of, of my career trajectory, I was not the nicest guy in the world. I was pretty driven. And I, I was lucky in that I had a, an executive coach who worked with me for about six months. The reason he worked with me, and this is not a story that I think made it into the book, but I was up for a promotion and there was no question in my mind. I was the guy. I was the guy who had produced the results. I was the guy who was making things happen. I was the guy who was driving my people toward you know, exceptional productivity. And when someone else was selected for the, the promotion that I expected to be given to me, I was ticked off. And, and I was sure, you know, this is all, it's all politics. And I, I did all of the, the woe is me things you can, you can imagine. And I spent plenty of time talking down about the senior leaders who had made these decisions. The senior leaders recognized my capabilities, but they also recognized my flaws. And the one thing that they did that I ultimately very much appreciated is in order to keep me, they addressed with me directly the reasons why I had not been selected. And the reasons why I had not been selected had all to do with my, I don't think they used the term likability, but that's essentially what they were saying, that people were more intimidated by me than motivated by me. And they said, we want you to find an executive coach. We'll pay for it. We'll give you six months of executive coaching. We think that you have a huge potential to go to the next level in your career, but you're going to have to really dig into what's holding you back right now. The coach, to his credit, did a fantastic job. As we got to know each other better, and he became more comfortable with me and vice versa, there was a point at which, and I remember it to this day, that he said, Dan, now that I actually know you, you're actually a pretty fun guy. And, and you're funny. You, you have a sense of humor. You, have, you tell great stories. And he said, I wonder to what degree do the people that you work with ever see this Dan Rust? I don't think your colleagues at work actually see this person. And it was a bit of an epiphany for me. And I can't say that it was just like a, a switch that flipped immediately. But as I began to realize that the part of me that was so hard and driving was actually an insecure part of me. It was the part that wasn't sure. It was the part that wasn't sure we were going to make it happen. Wasn't sure that I of a lot of things. And I realized when I am most sure of myself, when I am most secure with myself, when I'm most secure with the environment, I relax and I start to have fun and I start to be funny and I start to people start to enjoy the time they spend with me. And so that deep process of recognizing the hardness was coming from my own insecurity and that there was a part of me that could be so much more fun to work with. I will tell you, it was a, it was a process. It was a couple of years of working to become more and more, I'll use charming for lack of a better word. But if you were to tell people today, and I'm in a different work environment now, I'm working with different people now. But if you were to tell people today that I used to be an abrasive hard ass. They would, they just wouldn't believe it. They absolutely would say that. Are you serious? How, how is that even possible? Dan, I was thinking the other way. If you talk to people 25 years ago and told them what a fun and charming guy you are today, they're the ones who would be surprised oh, as well. Yeah, they wouldn't believe it either. Yes, you, you are <laughs> correct. Yes. Uh, there would be disbelief on both sides without, without question. 
Dan, in your book, you mentioned Herb Luttrell, who was the CEO of Player Track Systems. And he had a different experience because there was no change in how he responded and related to people. Can you share briefly what his experience was like? And, you know, as a warning, as a counterexample for people who think that is not necessary to address this important area. Herb worked for a company called Player Track Systems, and he it was a it is a casino industry marketing firm. If you go to any of the large casinos and they issue you a player card, Player Track is one of the companies that sells those cards to casinos, and they have technology behind that that uh, helps casinos track their players and track the level of activity of their players, etc. And then and then decide which players get marketed to afterwards and which don't. Player Track was having some internal challenges with their corporate culture. And and Herbert hired me to facilitate a back and forth discussion with his team about some specific projects that were off track. And uh, we were going to do some brainstorming in terms of how we get the projects back on track, what else we might want to do with those particular projects. And what I saw almost immediately was, even though he had hired me to facilitate the conversation, as I began to try draw things out from people Every time I posed uh, an open-ended question for the group, the first person to answer was Herb. And Herb would not only give an answer, but give it with that tone of finality like, well, here's the answer. Certainly not, here's my perspective, or here's what I'm thinking, what are you guys thinking? It was more of, well, here's why that's not working, or here's why that's late. And there was such a, a degree of personal abrasiveness that, man, if you've ever been tasked with facilitating open brainstorming and you've got one person in a position of power that whether he realizes it or not is just tamping down you know, anybody's desire to you know, throw information into the mix, it's a painful process. So the session didn't go very well, but, but actually when I circled back with Herb just to, to get his feedback, he thought it was fine. He got what he wanted, and and it turns out I think what he wanted from the session was just someone there to ask questions so that he could give the answers. And I guess I served my role. And he had the audience of his managers who were gathered. Yeah, so it was a weird dynamic, and I kind of realized that. And however, Player Track was going through challenges, and that was one of the reasons I was there. And they had in the previous five to eight years, they had been growing like thirty percent a year annually. And this particular CEO. Herb Luttrell was well-recognized in the industry. I think he had some innovative technology, so he'd really been able to drive some, some serious growth, but they had come on some hard times. Their growth trajectory had gone way down to less than 8%, and that was one of the reasons I was brought in was to facilitate a brainstorming session you know, regarding you know, why has our growth traje- trajectory diminished and what can we do about it? And Herb, of course, was of the opinion that it was all about people in that room not doing certain things. And so he got a chance to point all, all of his fingers. After doing a, a brief review with Herb, I left him alone for a while. I circled back, I think it was six months later, just to uh, see perhaps there might be some, some more work for me. And turns out Herb wasn't there anymore. I got a chance to talk to a few of the people who were there that I'd met at the brainstorming session. But what I learned was that many of the people who were there weren't there any longer. They had left simply because the work environment itself was uncomfortable, was not what drawing them to come back to work day in and day out. And they lost some really good people during that process. And the board finally realized that for all of his capability, that capability that had served the business for a period of time to really drive, drive, drive growth, it was now 
hurting the business. And while the board had attempted to coach him toward perhaps a different kind of leadership style, the bottom line is they used to tolerate him being an abrasive jerk because he was producing 30% annual results, growth results. Once you're producing growth results of 5% or less, no one's going to tolerate an abrasive jerk. And so Herb was let go. And by the time I circled back, they had a new CEO, some new people on board, and and they were driving a very different culture. A few months later, I eventually tracked Herb Herb down and found where he had landed, I guess just being totally transparent. He hadn't changed at all, hadn't really learned any lessons from the process, and was (laughs) driving hard in a different business, different industry. His unwillingness to see how a lack of likability and charm was holding his own career back was his fatal flaw. We can all be charming. We can all be likable, but it has to start with wanting to be likable. That's right. And I I think it's true that people's single mode utility can serve for a short period of time, but ultimately, especially in Herb's case with these characteristics in this environment, it was far more detrimental to a business to keep him on because of the relationships that he burned, the, the managers he burned out, and you know th- how he built a poor relationship with his board. So I think that's an important lesson to draw from the fact that if you don't have different gears that you can adapt for different situations and different cultures, it could be ultimately detrimental and, and problematic. I, I think you're, you're exactly right. And I like using gears as, as the metaphor because there is a place and time to be an abrasive driver. There are times, and, I've, and I have known some incredibly likable and charming CEOs who make very conscious choices in certain meetings and certain situations, knowing that in order to achieve what has to be achieved, the hard-nosed driver has to come out. And I appreciate when that's a conscious choice as opposed to simply a default personality. Dan, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? I think I am. Well, here's how to find out. <laughs> okay. So what are one or two key components of your routine for daily success? So I am a big fan of daily meditation. You know, when we talk about being able to emotionally somewhat disassociate yourself from the the environment as a way of reading that environment, I find that just a pre-lunch morning meditation, five to eight minutes that I spent at my desk and I go through a meditative routine, allows me to let everything go. And then when I when I come out of the meditation, I just feel much more in tune with everything. What's your favorite way to get unstuck? And do you have a, a tool or system used for staying on track and productive? I do have a binder that I carry with me all the time. For me, it's a three-ring binder because I'm, I'm popping things in and out of it all, all the time. That binder has, for each of the businesses that I'm responsible for, I have a one-page business plan within that binder that keeps me strategically on track. And then all of the key projects that I am engaged with at any given time, the, the key data on those projects is in that binder. You know, people will tell you that I'm, they almost never see me without it. I take it wherever I go because it's, it is what keeps me on track. And I, and I do the, the standard things in terms of uh, assessing what am I going to work on tomorrow and making sure that I'm spending the majority of my time working on the most important things. I will tell you, as I, as I evolve as a leader, more and more, the most important things have to do with people as opposed to projects. I still have projects that I'm accountable for, and but you know you get to a certain age and your your ability to execute on projects gets really good. It's it's your ability to 
to engage with and manage and really see the people that you're working with. That's, that's the ongoing challenge. And, and now I'm sorry, I forget the first half of that question. What's your favorite way to get unstuck? Oh, getting unstuck. I guess my go-to tends to be to let it go for a while. Cause I'll, you know, it's like my, my frontal cortex will work on a problem and it can't, it can't solve it. So forcing myself to let it go. Explain what you mean by this post that you shared in your LinkedIn stream. Your value doesn't decrease based on someone's inability to see your work. It was both a you know, a personal post and and a post for for other people as well because the work environment can drive you down in terms of your uh, in terms of self perception. At the world of work, we are all a function, and for many of our you know for our employees, they are functions at work. They serve a function. They serve a a, a purpose, and sometimes the work environment doesn't see some of the other value that that you know you have to give. And some of that other value may be very much associated with work. There may be more things that you can do at work to create more value, but they just don't see it in you. Or it may be something totally unrelated to work. Just the fact that you spend time on weekends, um, you know, helping out at a, at, a, at a shelter or doing other things, or maybe you're an artist uh, in, your, in your off time. I think what, because we spend so much time at work, there's a dangerous mentality that develops for many people, which is my value and worth as a person is based upon my current function in the environment. And sometimes we buy into it because others buy into it. And it's hard for others in, at work sometimes to see the greater value we have. It's, it's one of the reasons why some people have more success applying for jobs outside of their existing company for, that, are, that are one, two, or three steps above where they are currently. They have more success out there than they do within that environment because that environment only sees the lim- a limited scope of their value. And that can erode your own self-perception of value over time. My point in that post was simply, do not allow how other people perceive you just because your company says, you know, we're looking for someone with more P&L experience. Years ago, you know, there was a movie with Dustin Hoffman uh, called Tootsie, where at the beginning, Dustin Hoffman is an actor trying to get uh, trying to get jobs on Broadway. And they go through a series of quick scenes where the directors are saying, hey, that's nice, but we're looking for someone shorter. And Dustin says, I can be shorter. We're looking for someone taller. I can be taller. We're looking for someone more this. He said, I can be that. And clearly, they're just looking for someone different than him. And initially, you know, that experience just you know, drove his self-esteem all, all the way down. Dan, you've been so generous in sharing on my quest for the best today. I, I want to thank you for sharing about your father, who was an Army Sergeant Major, and shared with you a perspective of what it was like growing up in the times when he did how you talked about how we're all just being human and humans are imperfect in spite of our best intentions sometimes do things that are illogical and frustrating to others we talked about the importance of understanding that work is not just about being a meritocracy and that the higher your level of authority the thicker and bigger your bubble is that often distorts the relationship you have with others. You talked with us about how an abusive hammer their utility can run out and people have capability plus flaws. For yourself, you saw that there are reasons why you weren't selected for a promotion, that people at the time were more intimidated than inspired by you, but you were able to work on that and get out so that working with your coach, you were able to share the parts of yourself that made you more relatable to others. 
you talked about with some of your routines that meditation is very important. The more advanced you get and senior you get with managing, you're managing people more than projects, which is important to remember. Another key piece of insight you shared with us was about sometimes it's hard to advance within your own company if you've been there a while because of the perceptions that have formed and maybe calcified. And it's easier to advance in a new company that's taking a fresh look at you and looking at you with new eyes. So for all these reasons, I, I just want to say thanks very much for sharing with us on my quest for the best. Can you tell us more about you and your work online? Sure, I will. Uh, let me also say, man, it, it sounds so much smarter when you say it. <laughs> so um, if, if someone wants to learn more about work, my work, just go to workplacepoker.com. There's more information, not just about the book itself, but about the overall work in helping people recognize and manage through all of the human dynamics at work. Dan, once again, thank you so much. Do you have any parting words you'd like to share with listeners before we say goodbye? I think the last thing I would just say is if you think back to those times in your world of work that have seemed to drive you a little bit nuts, and if you recognize that, in fact, everything happens for a reason, but sometimes we think it's crazy because we don't know what the reasons are. Over time, as you employ some of these skills, the world will actually start to appear a little less crazy and a little less nuts, just because you'll understand. It, you won't necessarily agree with everything that happens, but you'll understand why it's happening. And I think that also helps just, I think, reduce our, our internal stress at work and make the work experience that much more enjoyable. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.